0: Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. It's designed to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you haven't been able to make it to one of our campuses and participate in the time of giving, you could do so online through our website or by texting to give so that you can continue to participate in the mission that God has given us. We hope that God speaks to you through this sermon. All right, before we get started, I just have to ask all of you, whether you're online or at another campus or right here in Livermore, how many of you guys are excited for the big game today? Any NFL fans out there? Yeah. How many Rams fans are there really here to like, you've been a Rams fan, not just this year, like before this year? Yeah, I can't call the game what it's called because of copyright laws, so that's why I said big game um, or else we wouldn't be able to post this video. Uh, anywhere, So thanks, NFL, for that. But uh, how, about, how about Patriots fans? Do we have any Patriots fans out there? Look at booze happening. There's some, some bitter Raider fans from like 15 years ago. Tuck rule or whatever, right? Like you guys can't let it go. Uh, it's fine, I understand. But uh, I don't know about you guys, but I'm excited about today. This is one of my favorite days of the year because I love football. But it's also one of my least favorite days of the year. Because at four o'clock, or whenever that game starts, there's gonna be a moment after that where the game ends. And that means no football for seven months. And that is, look at that! You guys and my wife are kindred spirits. She's like, I get my husband back, I'm like, pitchers and catchers report in like two weeks, so. <laughs> oh, man. But I'm not, I'm not gonna go to that place yet where I'm thinking about football being being over because uh, there's still a game to be played. There will be a winner and there will be a loser. One team will succeed and another team is going to fail. At the end of the game today, one team will receive a giant trophy and another team will get absolutely nothing, which is the way it should be. If you don't win the game, you shouldn't get a trophy which is completely different from how I grew up. I was raised in the late 80s and early 90s when they start handing out participation awards to kids. Like, good job, you rode in the minivan to the game today. (laughs) Great work. The first time I experienced this, I remember feeling how wrong it was. Uh, my, My baseball team won one game all year, and then we had a pizza party to celebrate our accomplishments after the season. We, we celebrated losing 90% of the time. And, uh, and it, was, it was T-ball, and I remember there was one kid on our T-ball team that I felt should not have received a trophy. His, his name was Seth, and Seth was not good at baseball. Like, he couldn't hit a ball off a tee that was just sitting there. Like, he couldn't do it. And, uh, and he, play, he played right field, because that's where you hide bad baseball players. If you played right field, now you know. But... <laughs> But I, I didn't like like Seth because, because Seth, by the second inning, every, time, every game, like he took off his jersey and put it on his hat and pretended like it was a cape and, and tried to catch roly-polies and unroll them, which was weird and, and strange. But, but I, remember, I remember him playing right field. I played first base, and anytime time a ball was hit out to right field, Seth wouldn't go anywhere near it. And I played first base, and I was a fluffy, chubby kid, so that meant that I had to run and get the ball which I didn't like running, so I didn't like Seth at all. <laughs> but sure enough, end of the season, guess who got a trophy? Seth I was beside myself. Youth sports did not make sense to me growing up, growing up, and they actually have started to make less sense to me because I've realized that in most youth sports today, when, when you're at a certain age, they don't even keep score anymore. Like, they just play Sports for fun. No winners, no losers. No one fails at all. No, don't get me wrong, this is an abomination. Sports aren't supposed to be fun. There, there, there should be a winner and there should be a loser. Kids should be crying on the way home from the game. It is utterly pointless to not keep score. You know, but why, why is this the case? Why do we do this in our current society? Why do we choose to, to live this way? Well, I think it's pretty simple. We don't like anyone to feel like a failure. I mean, no one likes to fail. No one enjoys coming up short. No one likes to completely miss the pass interference call that totally shifted the the outcome of the game. (laughs) The ball is here, what are you looking at? This is wrong on so many levels. For all you Rams fans, you shouldn't be there today. Just saying. See, the Rams fans, the three of you, are just bummed right now, which is fine for me. But, but fail, failure, failure is not something we like. And for generations coming up, it's not even something we experience. Because as a culture, we are attempting to insulate ourselves and our kids from failure. But failure is a constant, is it not? I mean, each and every single one of us will fail, and we will also have to deal with the pain and consequences of the failures of others. It's inevitable. You know, I thought a lot about this in light of our study, the anatomy of love, and the verses that I got assigned to teach on today, 1 Corinthians 13, verses seven through eight, this idea of love and failure have been right in front of me the last few weeks as I've studied. Now, most of us would probably say that at some point in our life, love has failed us. A parent a sibling, a child, a friend, a spouse, someone who, who we love has let us down. Many, many of us would also admit that we have failed in love ourselves, that we have failed those we care about, that we have done something or said something to someone that would cause their love for us to falter. Consequently, some tension then arises when we get to this love chapter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, describing the essence of love. Here's what Paul writes in verses 7 and the beginning of 8. It always protects. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Love never fails. So while failure is consistent, Paul writes... Love is consistent. It consistently succeeds. It consistently, it never, ever fails. And many of us are already feeling uneasy about this because our experiences do not align with that definition of love. And I think this is the biggest issue we need to address right off the bat. Because the first thing we feel when we hear the word fail is something we felt from the moment we've entered the world. That we're being graded, assessed, evaluated for our performance. Our parents teach us this at a very early age as some of the first words we learn are the words good and bad. Oh, you ate all your vegetables. Good. Oh, you ate all the crayons. Bad. Bad. In his book, The Good and Beautiful God, James Bryan Smith writes, before we can speak, we become aware that acceptance hinges on our behavior, which produces a decidedly unstable world of highly conditional love. I mean, I I see this with my son all the time. When he does something I approve of, I'm very quick to affirm him. But when he does something wrong, I am very, very quick to point that out, which is part of my job as a dad to teach right from wrong. But the real challenge comes from making sure that Jericho knows that it's what he is doing that is being evaluated, not who he is. Now, on a side note, and this is completely separate from where we're going today, but if you're a parent, before we really dig in, the idea of making sure your kids know that who they are is not what's being assessed or evaluated or graded might be something we all wanna be extra intentional about moving forward. I'm doing my best with this with Jericho right now. Our our kids ministry calls this fighting for the heart of our kids. Because here's here's the deal. I know, I know that in our home, this is not the only place where my son Jericho will feel like he's being evaluated. School, sports, eventually work, will all provide and lead to to a worldview that is encapsulated by this performance-based acceptance. In 2019, we are very quick to learn that our value and worth is closely associated with how we perform. But the even larger issue for us today is when this performance-driven narrative This performance-based narrative works its way into our faith. When we start to concern ourselves with our religious performance in order to gain approval or love from God. The God from whom this study we've learned that he's defined by love, we read that in 1 John. But if God is defined by love, then because of what we've read here in 1 Corinthians 13, we know that God is patient and kind. That he does not envy, he does not boast, he is not proud, he is not self-seeking, he does not dishonor others. He is not easily angered, he keeps no record of wrongs. That God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And as we continue today, we also see that God, in his love, always protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. And God never, ever, fails. And if God does not fail, if this is true of God, and if it is true of us that we are trying to imitate God and his love for us to those around us, then we realize that we immediately do not measure up to God. So we have this tendency to try and make up for that deficiency by earning God's approval. You know, If you walked around your neighborhood or your community or you talked to some friends that don't attend church and you said, hey, what do you need to do to make God like you? Most people would say, well, I should probably go to church. I should probably give some money. I should probably help the poor and uh, sin not as much. That's, that's what I should do to make God like me. In other words, perform adequately for God. And what this answer is saying, what this common and typical understanding of trying to gain God's uh, affection, what it's saying is I can control how God feels about me by doing the right things and avoiding the wrong wrong things. To make sure that I'm getting enough points so I can win with God. That God's keeping score. God will love me more if I fail less it's a narrative that I find myself falling into too often. Thankfully, this, isn't, this is not the narrative of the Bible. The Bible teaches us something completely different about God's love. And let me show you by taking a closer, work, a closer look at the word fail that we read here in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. When, when Paul writes love never fails, he uses the word pipto for fail. And what pipto means literally means fall down. So what Paul is saying is love never falls down. Love never collapses. You know, think, about, think about something that, that you've seen collapse. I think of the movie San Andreas starring Dwayne the Rock Johnson, phenomenal actor. We can argue about that later if you want. <laughs> but in the movie, during an earthquake, all these buildings just start collapsing and crumbling all around everywhere which is exactly how my relatives in the Midwest think the daily life of Californians is. Just earthquake after earthquake and buildings collapsing. I hope they're enjoying their negative 36 degree weather right now. <laughs> I called my grandpa, this, is, uh, this isn't in my notes at all, called my grandpa on, on Thursday and he was like, yeah, I went outside for five minutes to feed the deer. And I was like, Grandpa, there's no deer out there anymore. They're, they're long gone. But uh, he, was, he was staying warm, luckily. But but we understand, we understand, when we think of that whole idea of things crumbling, we understand that, that based on this word "pipto," when it comes to love, it never collapses. It does not crumble, it does not dissipate. It stands tall. Therefore, God's love does not fall down, no matter what, regardless of performance. You see, while the the current cultural context we find ourselves in tells us that our worth and value is defined by what we do, God tells us something different. Actually, if, if we study the life and teachings of Jesus, we see that through stories and actions, he went out of his way to describe a different reality. I mean, you can search as much as you want through this book. And you will not find a passage where Jesus communicates that God only likes us when we are good or perform the right religious activities. But what you will find, in the beautiful words that just jump off these pages, is Jesus speaking of a God who loves us unconditionally. A God whose love doesn't fail. The times where we feel that we've done something or said something or been something that would cause love for us to crumble, through Jesus we meet a father whose love never falls down. You know, one of the most popular stories that Jesus told, a story that Jesus made up to to get a certain point across, a parable, you've probably all heard of it, is the parable of the prodigal son. It's found in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. And we're gonna spend some time unpacking this scripture today and maybe uncover some things that you haven't quite realized about this scripture before. I mean, for any of us who, who have ever had a sibling rivalry growing up or tried to win your parents' affection, like you could gain their approval by, by certain things you did that were better than your sibling, um, this, this story will really resonate with you. Actually, even if, even if you didn't have a sibling rivalry growing up, I think this story from Jesus will really strike a chord with each of us. We're gonna start in verse 11 of chapter 15, and here's what we read. Jesus continued, and we'll go, we'll, we'll talk about what he was continuing on from a little bit later, but Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And right away, that doesn't seem too strange to us. Like, hey, maybe a little bit. Like, can I have my inheritance now? But Jesus' audience in that day would have been just in complete shock. Because in those days, the father's estate was was typically separated amongst the children. In this situation with two sons, the oldest son would have gotten two-thirds of the estate, while the youngest son, the one who asked for his share, would have gotten one-third of the estate. But they would have received this when the father died. When the father passed away. But this dad is still alive. So to ask for his share now, the younger son is not only showing deep disrespect, but is essentially wishing his father dead. He's saying, dad, I don't care about you. You can go away. I just want your things. I don't want you. That's what the son's communicating. And the dad says okay he grants his son's wish we we read that Jesus says he divided his property which that word property in the greek is the word bios so when Jesus is telling this story that word bios means life Jesus says the father gave his life to his kids this is another shocking moment for Jesus's audience as most middle eastern fathers would not have responded with such grace and affection when their love was rejected in such a manner. But this dad bears the pain. His love doesn't fall down even when he's experiencing deep disrespect from his child. And his love never will fall down. But before we get to the dad, let's look at what the son does next. He, he takes his money, he's got, he's got all this cash, he takes off, he's like, thanks dad, see you later. I'm done with you. And he goes and he spends all of his money in a reckless manner. So much so that he he wastes his father's entire inheritance and eventually finds himself in a literal pit eating pig slop to avoid starvation. And in that moment, he sits there and he goes, what am I gonna do? Look at me, I'm in a pig pen. I'm in a pit of pigs eating their food to try and stay alive. How did I get to this depth of failure in my life? So he starts to come up with a plan. Okay, so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go back to my dad, I'll tell him I was wrong, and then I'll communicate that I, I'm fully aware that I've lost the right to be his child, I've lost the right to be his son. And so I'll ask him to give me a job, to, to learn a trade under him, I'll become like one of his servants, and I'll pay off the debt. I'll be able to perform the right actions to, to attempt to get back in his good graces. So he sits there amongst the pigs and practices delivering his speech to the animals nearby and when he feels confident enough with his presentation he gets up to go to his father. The same father that we remember who graciously gave his son the money and was completely heartbroken and destroyed when his son walked away. You know one of my favorite musicians, Dustin Kendrew, sings a song about this moment and how hurt the father was. But regardless of his hurt, he still showed extravagant grace and longing for his son. And I think this song, this little part that I want to read to you, does a good job of illustrating how the father was feeling here in Jesus' story. So here's what the father's perspective is on his lost son, according to this song. I still stand here waiting with my eyes fixed on the road and I fight back tears and I wonder if you're ever coming home. Don't you know, son, that I love you and I don't care where you've been, so please come home. And now you've hit bottom, all those open doors have shut and your hungry stomach's tied in knots. But I know what you're thinking, that you've troubled me enough. Son, nothing could ever separate you from my love. So I'll still stand here waiting with my eyes fixed on the road. See, the father's love never fell down and it never will. it's, it's It's a love I saw from my folks. When, as a young man, I was consumed with my own vices and escapes, their love didn't fall. That's why I'm standing here today. You know, any parent who has a prodigal can speak to this. Their love isn't going anywhere. And if I can encourage any of you who have a lost son or a lost daughter right now, hold on to these words from verses seven and the beginning of eight from 1 Corinthians. Persevere, trust, hope, protect. Don't let your love collapse don't ever stop looking down that road. My prayer for you is that one day you will see what the father in Jesus' story saw. With his eyes fixed down the road, he finally, he finally sees his son coming home. Now, just so we're clear, in that day, with this story that Jesus is telling, every one of his audience would have been thinking, well, I know what the dad's gonna do because the dad would have been well within his rights to gather the elders of the community and upon his son's return, he would have been totally good to stone his son to death for the disrespect that was shown. So, so it's like the people in Jesus' audience are waiting around going, okay, let's, let's get to the, the, the meaty part. Let's get, let's get to that gruesome stuff, Jesus. And then Jesus says... The father, here's what the dad did. The father, filled with compassion, runs to his son. Something that also Middle Eastern fathers didn't do. They didn't run around like little boys. The father runs to his son, filled with compassion. He hugs him and he kisses him. He embraces his son that is home. And his son the whole time is trying to get through the speech that, that he prepared with the pigs back in the pig pen and his dad's just like, no, no, no. The son's like, Dad, Dad, I'll work for you. I'll be, I'll be like a slave to you. Dad, I want to make things right. And the dad just says, shh, you had me at hello. This is that first moment that that happened in history. Seriously, though, his son interrupts, and, or he, the dad interrupts his son and says, oh my gosh, my boy is home. Put some nice clothes on him. Put the best steaks on the grill. We're gonna party tonight. And this is what he says in verse 24. Jesus says, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. It's like what Pastor Steve talked about last week. If you weren't here last week, go back and listen to that message. He did a phenomenal job unpacking this idea of not keeping score, which is exactly what the Father does in this situation. He doesn't doesn't tally up all the ways his son wronged him. His love doesn't diminish because of the amount of offenses against him. The father's love was not contingent on anything the son had done. No, this love was consistent. It protected his son. It hoped, it persevered, it trusted. Even when the son had turned his back on his dad, the father's love did not fall. It didn't fail. I mean, of course, the father hated his son's offenses, He he was grieved by it and tormented by it, and they would have had to work through that. But his love, don't miss the fact that his love never changed. You see, I, I fully believe that our Father really likes us sinners. So much so that he forgives us before we've even earned his forgiveness, before we're even worthy of his forgiveness, or before we even ask for his forgiveness. I mean, just like the father in this story who knew all along how he was going to respond to his child, God knows all along how he's gonna respond to us. Our worst failures do not affect God's love for us or his longing for us to come back home to him. I believe that our father does not keep score. You know, maybe for some of us today, This is exactly what you needed to hear. You've been checking out church, potentially even attending church to try and compensate for some of your failures against God. But here's the beautiful thing about faith in Jesus Christ that's so different from most faiths in the world that this faith is a faith for failures. It's a love that never falls down and always, always gives a second chance. And if you've been attending church, trying to figure out how you can make up for your, your failure, I'm here today to tell you, you can't do it. Quit rehearsing your speech. The Father is staring down the road, waiting for you with a love that has never failed you. I mean, God looks at you and looks at me and says, you're my son, you're my daughter, you are mine. There's nothing you could do, no performance or action you could make. No performance or action you could fail in that would ever cause my agape love to fall down. I love you. This is, this is my essence. It flows from my being for you. But, but for anyone who, who gets a little uneasy with that, with what I just said about the grace and love of God, which, to be honest, I'm with you have experienced that, and do still experience that. But if that's us, we have to look and realize that this isn't the end of Jesus' story here in Luke chapter 15. There's more. See, Jesus has some practical next step for those of us who are already at home with our Father. And this part of the story seems to get missed. See the the father's oldest son was was off in the field, and he saw the party, and so he asked one of his dad's workers, like, "Hey, what's what's going on over there?" And the guy he was talking to said, "Oh man, you haven't heard? Your brother's back. Your brother came back home. Your dad pulled out all the stops. They're partying over there." Now, some brothers would be thrilled to hear that their sibling came home. I mean, I probably wouldn't have. I wasn't a great older brother. I was kind of a jerk. My sister and I used to get in arguments all the time, and her way of getting back at me was pretending like she was gonna run away. And she'd run out the front door, and I'd lock it behind her. <laughs> so go experience the real world. <laughs> As an eight-year-old. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think that, like I said, I wasn't, I wasn't a good brother that often. And neither was this one. See, when this brother found out that his younger sibling had come home, he got mad and he wouldn't even go into the house. He just stood on the porch. And when his dad came outside and begged him to come into the party and join the celebration, the oldest son just went off on him. Dad, I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've been over backwards for you. You haven't even thrown me a little party for me and my friends with everything that I've done. But when my idiot brother comes home, this is what you do? No, dad, I'm not going into that party. That's not for me. I'm gonna stay right here on the porch. And once again, of this poor father in Jesus' story, he's heartbroken, but in another demonstration of grace, he responds to his oldest boy, verse 31, my son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found. You know, before Jesus told this story, he was being criticized for eating dinner with sinners. And this is something rabbis did not do. So he's catching some flack from the religious elite before he started talking about the lost son. And this is why I believe that this part of the story, the part about the older brother, is the main point that Jesus wanted to get across to his audience. So we have to be aware of that as we study this chapter. This story isn't so much about the younger son, which that's important and it's valuable. Like we just heard how how big that is. But I think even more so to the brother who stayed home, the one who represents those of us who have a difficult time grasping a non-performance-based, non-score-keeping, never-failing love. For those of us who've been in the church for a while, lean in here with me. This is important. Lean in with me right now. Because the older brother is the example for those of us who get uncomfortable with God's unconditional love for other people, or we get uncomfortable with God's unconditional love for even ourselves. And I can totally see why in this story the older brother would be so upset. He he was better. He was the better performer, he should have had more points, he should have received the trophy and the party and everything else, he should have been winning. The older brother is understandably upset, not just because he's older, but because he's the good kid. This isn't fair. But how does the dad respond to his oldest son? What does he say? He says, everything I have is yours. In other words, you have the same things that he has. You see, it might seem unfair, but in reality, it is perfectly fair. God's love never fails anyone, whether you're in the pit or on the porch. And here's the deal for us if we, as the church, posture ourselves like this older brother, we are missing Jesus even more so than the younger brother was because pride is consuming us. And if you want to see how Jesus felt about pride, read his words. It is deadly. I mean, if we assume that God should bless us because we've worked hard at keeping his rules, then we're the ones keeping score. It's why Jesus said, said on the last day, many of you will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy on your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did, no, did we not perform miracles? To which Jesus will respond, I, I never knew you. Because while Jesus might be our example and our inspiration if we're keeping score, If we're doing that, then Jesus is not the one saving us. No, we're trying to save ourselves if that's the case. It's a self-righteous mentality, and if it's coming through, then our imitation of God is failing anyone who is not a part of this family or a part of this community right now. Our love is falling down. I mean, how can we expect unbelieving, searching, lost individuals to join us if we posture ourselves like this older brother? I mean, why would anyone who is looking for hope look to the church if the church fails at the foundational character of God? If our love fails when we don't agree with someone, if someone has wronged us and our love falls apart, if someone isn't living the lifestyle we approve of and our love collapses, we're missing the heart of Jesus. Church, we cannot ever let our love fall down. This is what marks us as followers of Jesus Christ. But I think there's another layer to it. If I'm being honest, I think I align more with the older brother in this story. And I don't think it's so much because I have a difficult time with God's unconditional love and grace toward others. But to be completely transparent with you today, I I, I really struggle at times with God's grace toward me. My performance-based mentality that is so culturally and at times theologically embedded in me makes God's love so difficult for me to truly grasp sometimes. But the thing that helps is when I remember and hold on to the fact that I actually have a really good older brother. A perfect older brother, in fact. An older brother who protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres for each of us. In his book, The Prodigal God, Timothy Keller writes, and actually that is if you made a New Year's resolution to read a book this year, hopefully you made a resolution to read more than one book, but if it was just one, I, I really encourage you to to pick this one up. I actually bought a handful of copies to give away today. I'll be out in the courtyard. So if you promise you'll read it and like I said, I only have a handful, So, and you get there first, I'd love to give you a copy of that book. It's how much I value it, and, and the opinion that Keller, Keller has. But, but in the book, Keller talks about Luke chapter 15, where we read this story that we just went over, and, and, and he, he describes that if we back up a little bit. We see that Jesus tells two other stories about things being lost in, in Luke 15. The story of the, the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and then he gets to the story of the lost son. And in the first two stories, what's interesting is with the lost sheep and the lost coin, someone goes and looks for that which is lost. But in the story of the lost son, no one goes searching for the son. I mean, the dad just sits back and waits. It's as if Jesus is imploring us to ask the question, who should have gone and looked for the, for the lost son? Who should have gone out and, and searched for him? And we know that Jesus knew, knew Old Testament scripture really well. And as he's telling this story, I'm sure he had the beginning of our Bible in, in the book of Genesis, right in the front of his mind. Because we read a story in the book of Genesis about an older brother and a younger brother, Cain and Abel. And in that story, God tells the pride-filled older brother, you are your brother's keeper. You are responsible for your younger brother. Which this story reminds me of another story I heard about a U.S. soldier who went missing during the Vietnam War, and his family was terrified. Couldn't find him, couldn't get word to him, never heard anything from him. So the oldest son, the older brother, decided to fly to Vietnam and go searching for his younger brother. And he searched everywhere, through jungles and and battlefields. He, He literally risked his life to find his older brother. But the crazy thing is, he never got hurt. And the reason he never got hurt is because both sides of the war, think about this, both sides of the war heard about the quest he was on and respected it and let him be. He actually developed a nickname while he was there. They called him simply the brother because he embodied what a true brother looks like. You see, this is what the older brother in Jesus's story should have done. This is what our true older brother does do. I mean, this is, what, this, is what, this is what a true older brother would have done in the story of the prodigal son. Like, yeah, dad, my, my brother is an idiot, but he's my brother. I'll search for him, I'll look high and low for him, and I will bring him home. Whatever it takes, I am my brother's keeper. And if he's wasted all of his money, I'll bring him back on my dime. Because it is only at the older brother's expense that the younger brother can be brought back in. The older brother should have paid the price for his younger brother's forgiveness. Now, don't miss this. And I'll close with this today. We have an older brother that paid the price. Jesus Christ was sent by the Father to be our older brother, a brother who not only scours the land for us, but an older brother who gave his life so that we would have the, the opportunity to experience God in all of his love. The love of God that is recklessly extravagant. Love that doesn't fall down, that never crumbles or ceases, it never falls apart. It says you first, your pain, your weakness, your inadequacy, I see it, it's real, I acknowledge it, but it does not affect, it does not change, it does not alter my love for you. Because love never fails. Love never falls down, but here's what it does do. It does lay down. It lays down the life of our older brother who didn't lose on the cross. Sure, he forfeited his life, but he didn't lose. That death, his death, his sacrifice, led him and us straight to victory in him. His love didn't fail, and it never does. And whether today you identify with the younger brother or the older brother, or maybe somewhere in between, this story is for us. And it doesn't matter if you're in the pig pen or on the porch, we have to walk away today understanding the relentless love of God that never collapses. Will you receive it? Regardless of where you are on your journey with Jesus, will you receive and soak in the love of God today? The love that has never and will never fail you. You know, in light of today's story, If you're more like the younger brother, it's time to come back home. Get out of the pig pen, get out of the pain. Jesus has his eyes fixed on the road. God has his eyes fixed on the road for you. Come back home. And if you're more like the older brother, I think it's time for any of us that experience tendencies like him, It's time for us to get off the porch and get into the party because we have lost younger brothers and sisters right here in the Tri-Valley who might be looking at us to be the one example of a never failing, never collapsing, never ceasing love. The same love that we've had the opportunity and blessing and privilege to experience in our own lives from our Father who loves us. You know, later this afternoon when you're watching the big game you're gonna see a winner and you're gonna see a loser because they will undoubtedly keep score. Someone will succeed and someone will fail. Based on their performance, one team will stand elevated above all and one team will fall. And maybe in a small thing like a big game, it can prompt us to take a moment and reflect on and maybe even receive today the God that is love a love that does not crumble or cease or fall based on our performance, a love that never fails, a love that our older brother scours the land looking for us for, to bring us back home. It's a love that always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, and it never, ever fails. It is constant, consistent, and it will always remain. And no matter how hard you try, nothing you do will ever change that. Father God, man, you, (laughs) your love, God, is something else. I mean, I, I, I know the ways that that I've wronged you. I know the ways that I've come up short, God. And the fact that you just hold on to me, that you remain, that your love stays true, that it's trustworthy, God, that it never fails me. God, what a, what a, I don't deserve it. Father, I don't deserve your grace. I don't deserve your compassion. I don't deserve your mercy. None of us do, God, but we are so grateful for it you are such a good father you are a good God and we worship you, we adore you father and we want to live our lives to honor you God and if there's anyone here that that has run away from you or or turned away and thought I probably messed up too bad to come back home I know that I am living proof that that is not true of you God that you receive all of us with open arms regardless of what we've done or where we've been So God, I ask that you make your presence felt today. That maybe even in this moment that someone is is reaching out and trying to experience your love, Father, that they would just cling to you. And God, for for those of us that have been a part of the church for a while, let us be the example you've asked us to be. Let people know who we are by the way we love God. Let our heart break for people who are not at home with you because we know how good this is. God, we love you. We glorify you. you're, You're so good. Love you so much, Father. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.